Oh, this is gonna be a fun one. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Not just an alien movie by Steven Spielberg, but also the term used by the government to classify UFO sightings. You see, a close encounter of the first kind involves seeing an unknown object from about 500 feet away or less. A close encounter of the second kind is when a UFO actually interacts with the environment around it. This can be impression marks, heat, radiation, or even animals acting weird. But a close encounter of the third kind is when actual beings are witnessed near the unknown craft. And what's crazy is that Steven Spielberg actually based his movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, on actual encounters documented by Project Blue Book, the Air Force's study of UFOs back in the 1960s. And he even had J. Allen Hynek, the face of Project Blue Book, consult on the movie. But what many people don't know about Hynek is that before working for Blue Book, he was actually a world-renowned astronomer. Hence why he was almost too quick at times to write off certain sightings as either swamp gas or weather balloons. Something that's led conspiracy theorists to assume that Project Blue Book's only purpose was to debunk UFO sightings. But in reality, over the course of Hynek's career at Project Blue Book, despite being able to write off the vast majority of the sightings reported, 701 of those sightings to this day remain unexplained. And when Project Blue Book ended officially in 1969, Hynek, who is now outside the umbrella of the government, released his own book a few years later called The Hynek UFO Report, What the Government Suppressed and Why. And as legend has it, the UFO that landed in Socorro, New Mexico in 1964 is the one case that single-handedly converted J. Allen Hynek from UFO debunker to UFO believer. One of the best, most well-documented cases in U.S. history took place in Socorro, New Mexico, April 24, 1964. It was the case that turned around Dr. J. Allen Hynek. So what happened in this real-life close encounter of the third kind in 1964? Let's discuss. It all started in Socorro, New Mexico on April 24, 1964. And that's when around 5.50 p.m., 31-year-old officer Lonnie Zamora was patrolling the streets in his car when a black Cadillac sped right by him driving recklessly. So Zamora started to pursue this speeding car. Mid-pursuit, they were driving along a road that was leading outside of town, and that's when Zamora heard this loud roaring sound out of nowhere. I was chasing a reckless driver going up south. Confused, he started to look around trying to look for the source of where the sound was coming from, and that's when he spotted a large blue flame that was descending into a dry riverbed nearby. We got a dynamite check to the west there. As he was pulling up, he saw what he thought looked to be an overturned car about 200 yards away. Well, going up to halfway, I could see a white object to my left there. I thought it was a turnover car. When I got up on top of the mesa there, I looked down and I seen this uh, big white object uh, on the ground. That's when he got out of his car to get a closer look at it. And from this distance, he could see that the object was a white metallic color and it almost looked like it had several extensions propping it up off the ground. That's when Zamora noticed that there were also two people walking around on the outside of this object. I could see some figures looked like they were walking around the crab. And they looked like they were wearing what appeared to be white coveralls. He indicated that he saw something along the side, or on the side of the instrument or the device that resembled white yes. That's when his cop instincts kicked in. Assuming these were two people who did in fact overturn their car, he figured they might need his help, so he wanted to drive up closer and offer his assistance. He noticed that one of the two people had seen him, which seemed to have startled this individual. That's when Zamora reached down for his radio to try to call back the dispatch, but for some reason there was static coming through so strong on the radio that his message wasn't getting through. So Zamora turned on the car to start pulling closer, and that's when he thought he heard a sound like thunk 
thunk. That was almost like the metallic door of a tank shutting. And by the time he got around the hill, he drove up about 50 feet away from this object. He got out of the car and he noticed that these two people were no longer anywhere to be seen. After I got to my senses, did I see it or didn't I, you know? This was not an overturned car at all, but was rather a smooth, white, egg-shaped object with no visible rivets, seams, or windows. There was no words alongside it and nothing to imply that it belonged to NASA or the US military. All he could see that whatever this object was had four legs digging into the dirt, propping it up about three feet off the ground along with a large red symbol that was planted right on the side of this thing that didn't seem to match any alphabet he knew of. He described it to me as an inverted V with a sort of a bar across it. But before he could get too close, it seemed to emit a high-pitched humming noise that quickly turned to a low-pitched roaring sound, followed by a blue flame that started shooting out of the bottom of this thing. I heard this big boom. I saw this flame come up from underneath it, and I ran back behind the car, and it went up to 20, 30 feet up in the air. Now, the flame somehow wasn't making any smoke, but it was kicking up a lot of dust from the ground. And the roaring was so sudden that it scared the ever-living shit out of Zamora. So he started to run for cover behind his car while still trying to keep his eyes on the object. At this point, he could see the object was slowly rising off the ground due to the blue flame shooting out the bottom of it. And once it got about 20 feet off the ground, the flame stopped and the scene became eerily silent. He just stayed there for a while and then finally just took off slowly to the west. It made no noise and gave off no exhaust or smoke. With the object no longer in sight, Zamora tried to radio back to the police station one more time, and this time getting through to Nep Lopez, Lopez responded by sending four people out to the scene. The first to arrive on the scene was Sergeant Sam Chavez, who was a close friend of Zamora. A few minutes later, officers James Lucky and Ted Jordan arrived on the scene as well. First, there were four very deep impressions in the dirt, presumably left by the landing gear that were sitting on the ground. And the, the marks into the ground were nine inches deep, eight inches long, and nine inches wide. And from the shape of the holes, it was apparent that these weren't caused by something hard striking the ground, but rather an immensely heavy object that was sitting on the dirt and slowly pressing into the ground. You could see very clearly where it looked like a tripod had burned into the ground or something, a craft had landed. The next thing they saw were the bushes and the shrubbery in that area. Many of them were noticeably scorched to a black crisp and were still smoking from the fresh burns, but none of them were on fire. There was a bush that was all charred and burned. It was a remarkable thing to see. And we both believed what the sheriff told us. There was no question about it. One of the bushes that was sitting directly under the center of where this object was, was perfectly split in half by what seemed to be a powerful flame that sliced right through it. Chavez actually examined this bush himself while it was still smoking. And he said that it was mysteriously cool to the touch. Additionally, a lot of the sand and dirt around this area where the burn marks were, were exposed to such an immensely high temperature that it actually fused into glass. Now, this is a phenomenon that happens sometimes in the desert when lightning strikes the ground and hits the sand because fire doesn't burn at a temperature high enough. In fact, the kind of heat that's required to melt sand and turn it into glass is roughly 1700 degrees Celsius, which is approximately the same temperature a space shuttle reaches as it's re-entering Earth's atmosphere. And because of all this physical evidence nearby, Officer Ted Jordan decided that he was going to get out his personal camera that he had on him and start taking pictures of the scene. That's when all the officers decided it might be a good idea to place big, large rocks in a circle around each one of the divots and impressions.
impressions that were made in the ground. So they placed rocks around the landing gear imprints to preserve the fresh ground traces. Those rocks are still here today. And since this all went down in the evening around 6 p.m., within the hour, the sun started to set and they were quickly losing daylight. That's when the guys decided to call it a night, but rather than going home, Zamora and Chavez went back to the police station to file an official report. Now, one thing to note is that Zamora didn't immediately assume this was a UFO from another planet. In fact, he thought he might have seen a test experimental craft from the nearby White Sands missile range. So he and Chavez actually called up White Sands range to tell him what happened. And in response, they sent out Captain Richard Holder along with FBI agent Arthur Burns in order for them to further question Zamora that same night. And Zamora told them everything. Well, my first impression was that it was something from the range that needed possible help, first aid, attention are at best security. The more I got into it, the less convinced I was that that was the case. And after hearing all the details, Captain Holder then suggested to Zamora that it would be best for him to not reveal the actual symbol that he saw to the media in case they asked. Someone put a fake symbol on it just so to see if people were hoaxing it? Well, what he did was, it was a good idea actually. He said, look, let's change the symbol. That way, if there's anybody else claims to have seen this thing and they say, yeah, that's the symbol, we'll be able to quickly identify a hoaxer. So, uh... so that, was, that was the point behind that. That's pretty clever. Whenever the media asks, he should also not talk about the beings that he saw because that aspect might be a little hard for the Air Force to explain away. And immediately after the interview, Holder and Burns both took flashlights and then went out to the site to do their own investigation in the dark. Now, this is an important detail to make note of because the very next day when all the officers went back out to the site, they noticed that all the compacted glass that had formed from the sand was actually removed and all the footprints were now hardly even visible. Regardless, by morning, the story had hit the newspapers and it spread like wildfire. They stopped me all over town and wanted to know this, wanted to know that. And then I got phone calls from all over the world. I was getting disgusted with it. One of these people who was present the next day was Officer Jordan, who, if you remember, was one of the first people on the scene the day before and was taking pictures with his personal camera. That's when one of the Air Force personnel came up and actually confiscated his camera reel that he had been using for the photos, which allegedly included images of the indentations on the ground the scorched bushes, and most notably, the shapes resembling footprints. And when Jordan later asked for his camera reel, the Air Force claimed that the photos didn't develop properly because radiation had ruined the camera reel. They told me that they would develop them and send me copies of them. It never occurred. And when I asked later about it, they told me that the film was no good, that it had been ruined by radiation. Now, this is an interesting claim because in all of the Air Force's reports, which later came out, and all the testing that was done on the site, it was actually shown that the site had no signs of radiation. Either way, Jordan never saw those photographs again, and only vague rumors of the alleged footprints now exist. Here's where it gets interesting. In one illustration that was later released in a leaked FBI document, there's a hand-drawn diagram of all the impression marks left in the ground relative to each other, with one area circled and labeled General Area of Footprints. And in another document containing photos from the site, one picture is labeled Close-Up of Footprint, where you can clearly see what looks to be a small footprint matching the drawings on the diagram. And then there was two sets of footprints, like so. That was about the approximate size of them. And in comparison to a quarter, that's pretty small. Within a couple of days, the news had gone all the way up to the White House, and that's when they decided to call in the big guns to try to figure out what this craft might have been. Dr. J. Allen Hynek. 
Now, because Hynek had arrived several days after the incident, much of the physical investigation had already been done. That's why Hynek decided that his investigation would focus mostly on the human aspect of the case, essentially trying to figure out if this was a hoax or if there was any logical explanation to what Zamora saw. But for seemingly every theory at the time and any theory that's popped up since, there has not and never has been any logical explanation to what Lonnie Zamora might have seen given the confusing physical evidence available. And after multiple trips and a large-scale investigation by J. Allen Hynek and Project Blue Book, the Air Force eventually concluded that the official cause of the sighting was unknown, making this not only the first ever documented close encounter of the third kind in United States history, but also one of the best documented cases too, and Hynek even doubled down on this conclusion in his book, The Hynek UFO Report. Maybe there is a simple, natural explanation for the Socorro incident, but having made a complete study of the events, I do not think so. It is in my opinion that a real, physical event occurred on the outskirts of Socorro that afternoon of April 24th, 1964. So was this the right conclusion? Well, let's put ourselves in Hynek's shoes and try to look at all the possible theories, assuming this wasn't an alien spacecraft from another planet. Theory number one. Lonnie Zamora confused a bright star for a landed craft. Shortly after the Air Force's conclusion, British skeptical author Stuart Campbell wrote, It is the second brightest star, Canopus, that was the object reported by Lonnie Zamora in April 1964. This appears to have been caused by an atmospheric inversion over the Rio Grande Valley south of the town. Now, this explanation seems silly, mostly because Campbell himself was not an astronomer and J. Allen Hynek was a world-renowned astronomer. This doesn't explain the loud roaring noise. It doesn't explain the scorch marks, it doesn't explain the landing marks, the footprints, the symbols Zamora saw, or hardly any other aspect of the case. So I'm ruling this theory out. Theory number two. Lonnie Zamora saw secret military technology. Now, this theory was quickly ruled out by Blue Book because if anybody would be able to find out if it belonged to our own military, it would be the Air Force's official investigation into unidentified flying objects. And according to Kevin Randall, author of the book Encounter in the Desert, The Case for Alien Contact at Socorro, Project Blue Book found no secret project located at Holloman that would explain the sighting. In fact, Major Quintanilla, the head of Project Blue Book, had queried the White House command post and was told that the only thing they had going on were U-2 flights, which obviously wasn't the answer. Which brings us to theory number three. Lonnie Zamora saw a test launch of NASA's lunar lander. Now, this is the theory that Major Quintanilla really tried hard to make the official Air Force explanation. My first reaction was that it was a lunar test module from NASA or the Air Force. That seemed to be the only logical explanation. But despite his efforts, it just didn't fit the bill. J. Allen Hynek writes, Major Quintanilla attempted to establish that it had been some sort of test vehicle, perhaps a lunar landing module. All of his efforts failed to give any indication that a man-made craft had landed at Socorro on the afternoon in question. Now, here's why it absolutely could not have been the NASA lunar lander. This case happened five years before we went to the moon. And at the time, NASA was testing their lunar lander at Holloman Air Force Base, which was about 100 miles away. So if they were going to do a test flight, they certainly would not have transported this top secret craft from their already existing test range into a populated area just to do a test launch. And even if they did, the craft that Zamora saw looked nothing like the lunar lander. Not to mention, in order for NASA to test their lunar lander, they had to transport it around with a large helicopter. Meaning that if what Zamora saw was in fact the lunar lander, there wouldn't have been any of the scorch marks that were present at the site. And he would have also seen a large helicopter carrying the lunar lander 
helicopter away, which he didn't, and there's almost no shot that Zamora would have confused a large helicopter for a large, white, smooth, egg-shaped craft. So as far as this explanation goes, it just doesn't seem to fit the evidence. Leading us to theory number four. Lonnie Zamora himself was responsible for the hoax. Some newspapers suggested that Zamora had crafted this hoax himself, but this was an observation that the people who knew Zamora and J. Allen Hynek adamantly disagreed with. I believe Lonnie Zamora was a good policeman and an honest man who reported as he thought proper something well beyond his experience. He's a very dependable, honest type of person. He's not one to create or make stories or, or, or build things up to, to make exciting or anything like that. According to Heineck, I was rather hoping at the time that I could somehow invalidate Lonnie Zamora's testimony, but I was completely unable to do this. He came through as a solid citizen, generally well-liked and of practical down-to-earth nature, thus making his participation in a hoax seem extremely unlikely. Because if Zamora did in fact do this himself, not only would he have had to make all the impression marks and the scorch marks himself, but he would have also put more effort into actually perpetuating the hoax that he would have had to work so hard on, which simply wasn't the case. In fact, Hynek's first impression of Zamora was that he was extremely shaken up by whatever he had witnessed and actually shied away from talking about it altogether, saying that it took him about 30 minutes just to get Zamora to open up to him. And the day after the incident, Zamora actually did an interview with the local radio station where the interviewer asked him if he thought this was an object from outer space. And Zamora responded by saying, Well, I didn't think it would be an object from outer space because I don't like an answer that you simply wouldn't expect from someone who's trying to create a hoax about a UFO landing where he's the only witness. Lonnie was very, very scared. He was as white as a sheet from here, went directly to the church to talk to the priest. But here's the most puzzling detail of all. Zamora wasn't the only witness. In fact, at 5.30 p.m. on the same day, roughly 15 minutes before Zamora saw the UFO, someone called into a TV station in Albuquerque saying that they had just seen a UFO going south towards Socorro. And in Socorro, there was a gas station being run by a man named Opel Grinder. And at 5.45 p.m. on that same night, a husband pulled into the gas station with his family and three kids. And as Grinder was helping the man fill up his tank, they started to make small talk where the husband mentioned something along the lines of, wow, your aircraft really fly low around here, huh? And he went on to explain how an aircraft flew right over the car and nearly took off the roof of it. And he assumed that the craft was in some kind of trouble because they had seen a cop car drive off the road and head in the direction of where the craft was going. I believe Lonnie saw something, same as the tourists saw, something that they have never seen or encountered before. You know, it did not meet a helicopter type scenario, definitely wasn't an airplane type scenario. And so you drool those two things out, in 1964, what do you have? It definitely wasn't a weather balloon. Even crazier, two days later, a man who was visiting his father's farm in a nearby town reported that he saw a craft shaped like a butane tank that landed in their backyard and was disturbing their horses in the middle of the night. He described the same flame that Zamora described and also reported indentations in the ground that were very similar to the ones left in Socorro. Which brings us to the fifth and final theory. Someone else created the hoax and Lonnie Zamora witnessed it. But when you think about it, this one doesn't really add up either. Take the two small beings for example. Officer Zamora described them as being small and childlike. 
he also said that they were wearing white coveralls. Now, if this truly was a hoax with someone trying to spread the narrative of aliens landing in the desert, then wouldn't you expect them to be wearing something that looked a little bit more alien? I mean, according to Zamora's account, as soon as the beings noticed him, they seemed startled and seemed to jump back into the graft, meaning that Zamora had only been looking at them for probably a few seconds before they disappeared. So they either got into the craft or they ran off somewhere else. And if they were hoaxers, then you would think they would stick around a little bit longer to be seen. So what about the craft itself? Some skeptics are adamant that it was a large balloon. Now, if it was a hot air balloon or something, maybe that could account for the large flame and roaring noise, but that doesn't explain how it silently hovered in place before quickly taking off over the mountains while staying low to the ground. And so the popular theory is that if it was a balloon, then whatever these two beings were got into a nearby car that was attached to the balloon by a rope and pulled it with the car. However, when you think about it, even if Samora was so blind that he wouldn't have seen a nearby car pulling a balloon on a rope, the fact of the matter is investigators, researchers, and even J. Allen Hynek himself scoped the entire area for any evidence like footprints, tracks, or tire marks, which they found none of. Here's what Hynek wrote in his book. I examined the site carefully and took photographs. I also made a point of wandering pretty far afield to see if I could spot similar landing marks in the area. If there had been any, they might have indicated the marks were attributable to cattle or some other natural causes, but there were no other similar marks anywhere. When you compare the evidence available in Zamora's testimony with any other potential explanation, it seems that the Occam's razor approach to this case is that whatever Lonnie Zamora saw on that day in the desert is exactly what happened as he recollected it up until the day he died. And that's why Hynek wrote after the investigation, it is Air Force Major Quintilla's and my opinion that both Officer Chavez and FBI Agent Burns must have been in on the hoax if we adopt the hoax hypothesis. They testified that there were no tracks in the immediate neighborhood and so that the hoax hoaxers must themselves have arrived and left by balloon. There's very little evidence to support this contrived solution and much more evidence to indicate that we are dealing with the most real phenomenon of undetermined origin. But there's one final piece to this puzzle that could offer an answer once and for all. And that's where James Fox comes in. He's a filmmaker who's directed some of the top UFO documentaries, such as Out of the Blue, Moment of Contact, and The Phenomenon. And in the making of The Phenomenon, which came out in 2020, he did his own deep dive investigation into this case, where he tracked down every possible document and journal entry from Hynek that he could possibly find. I eventually got access to the original Project Blue Book files, which was a total coup. And in this process, in a pile of old papers from Hynek's old documents, Fox found one document that seemed to be a journal entry Hynek took on the day he arrived in Socorro, New Mexico. Like, oh, it was like a halo around him. It was like the originals. <laughs> and I found this letter from Dr. Hynek dispelling once and for all the real symbol that was on the side of the craft. For the first time ever, it brought to light the real symbol that Lonnie Zamora saw on the side of this craft, which he drew for Hynek himself, not the fake symbol that he gave to the media. But surprisingly, for some unknown reason, there's one major advancement that Fox got in his investigation that didn't even make the final cut of the documentary. Ray Stanford showed me the rocks. What happened, the landing gear came down and this thing was very, very heavy and it broke this rock in half. It was a very hard rock and it had a razor sharp edge and the landing gear came down and hit that razor sharp edge of the of the freshly broken rock and it peeled like a shaving, very thin shaving, like almost like when they make drinks and they get the orange and they get the little yeah. thing out and make those. Yeah. He said it was like that. And by the time that James Fox was doing his investigation, he found out that there were two people in possession of some of these metal shavings. The first was a man named Ray Stanford who 
who's the author of a book called Socorro Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry. Now, Stanford was actually an investigator who arrived on the scene within a week of the UFO landing in Socorro, meaning that he was likely there investigating around the same time as J. Allen Hynek. And in his book, he documented all the evidence he found along the way, as long as outlined what he thought to be a cover-up by the Air Force. And the crazy thing about this book is that in all the years of Zamora's life after the sighting, he usually didn't like to talk about it, especially with his family. But one thing he adamantly told his wife leading up to the day he died was that the only person who ever got it right was Ray Stanford. So he tracked down a copy of this book and read it for himself. And one of the details from the book was that Stanford had actually collected several of these metal shavings himself and still had them in his possession. So James did everything he could to track down where he was and try to land an interview with him. And in this interview that he claims to have recorded but didn't put in the documentary for some reason, Sanford informed James that he had two pieces of this metal shavings. One, he dropped in tall grass and never, I was like, you dropped it in tall grass and you never recovered? He goes, I looked, I was on my hands and knees for hours. I don't know what happened. He was devastated. And the second piece, he actually sent into a NASA lab to be further examined. He takes the other one to a lab at NASA and the initial findings are astronomical. Like he's blown away and he's like, oh my God. And then they're gone. NASA claimed that the results were extraordinary and it was unlike anything they had ever seen. And he was like, well, what do you mean they're gone? Well, we had to destroy him in the process. So he was like, somebody stepped in. He said, my biggest regret was I trusted that, you know, Anyway, so that's so I heard about that, but I didn't cover it in the film. Devastated at this news, James Fox became obsessed. He needed to find a piece of one of these metal shavings because if they existed, they single-handedly could prove or disprove the legitimacy of Zamora's UFO sighting. And when interviewing even more people in the town of Socorro for his documentary, in one of the interviews with a former co-worker of Zamora's. But because of the attention and the ridicule that he got, it was putting too much pressure on him, the town, his position as a police officer. Oh, I was speeding. Oh, yeah, coming from the guy who sees little green men, like, you know, that kind of thing. Quit being a police officer. You got a job working at the dump site. And on Zamora's final day before retirement at the dump site, he walked into his boss's office to express gratitude for giving him this job. And that's when Zamora said something along the lines of, said, you offered me an opportunity. I'm so grateful. I want to thank you so much for the employment. And his buddy goes, yeah, I just would like one thing. Zamora instantly knew he wanted to know about the UFO because in all of their years of working together, they had never talked about it once. So he agreed to tell him all about it as long as he promised to not ask about the beings. Now, this story is coming from James Fox's interview with Zamora's former boss. And as he's recounting this conversation with Zamora, Zamora mentions something along the lines of, Real nonchalant. Oh yeah, Lonnie still has metal shavings. I said, uh, what? Now, this immediately stood out to James Fox because Zamora's box likely didn't know about the metal shavings that Ray Stanford had. So this was a second unrelated witness talking about these shavings. Unfortunately, by this time though, Zamora had passed away already. So James Fox went back to Zamora's house to talk to Mrs. Zamora, where he basically informed her that somewhere inside of her house were metal shavings from the craft. And she even mentioned something like, oh yeah, he had talked about that sometimes, but I didn't ever really think about it. So Fox, desperate to find these, offered to pay Mrs. Zamora whatever she asked for to essentially gain full access to their house and rip it apart top to bottom looking for these shavings. I turned that place upside down looking for these metal shavings. Nothing. So it seems that with this case of a UFO landing in Socorro, New Mexico in 1964, until we find any more physical evidence or until someone comes forward claiming responsibility for it, as J. Allen Hynek concluded, the true answer remains unknown. 
And if these were in fact alien beings from another planet landing in the New Mexico desert, then it only begs one question. Why on earth did it land in New Mexico? One answer to this riddle may lie in the fact that ever since the invention of the nuclear bomb at the end of World War II, there's been a clear uptick in UFO sightings near nuclear installations, many of which reside in New Mexico, which is formally recognized as the birthplace of the atomic bomb. And in dozens of instances throughout the 1960s, military personnel reported that UFOs were somehow shutting down or randomly powering up their nuclear warheads, almost starting World War III with Russia on multiple occasions. And I tell the entire story of what happened in this video right here. Go check it out. 